You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item so you get one free item for penis havers one free item for vulva havers one free item for couples and then you also get six free movies from the adameve.com website you can get your favorite porn or an educational film i love free movies they're so awesome this is such a great deal and then on top of that you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to adameve.com, you're gonna go to checkout, and you're gonna type in darkpod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you're gonna get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're gonna get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to adameve.com and take advantage of it right now. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. 
I want to let you know all about a good friend of mine and somebody who I think you should all get to know. If you are somebody who is looking for a companionship, a friendship, or romance, I want to let you know about my inclusive provider friend, Haley Jade. Haley Jade is a 30-year-old disabled bisexual offering online companionship for friends or romance. They have been published in Vice and HuffPost, and they specialize in working with disabled clients and are disabled themselves. Their online services start at $50 Canadian dollars, and they can be found on Twitter at Sexy Life Coach, Instagram at Sexy Life Coach, and you can book them via their website, Haley Jade, that's H-A-Y-L-E-Y-J-A-D-E dot C-H, to book on their website. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. If you're looking for a fun, sexy, romantic companion who specializes in disabled clients, Haley Jade is the one for you. Book them now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on a brand new Thursday episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability story. I'm, of course, your disabled Dick Smith, your one with cerebral palsy, your queer cripple. I am all those things to you. My name is Andrew Gerza, disability awareness consultant. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and shine a bright light on disability story today. Let's get the show started. As I am known to do at the beginning of every episode, I want to give a shout out to the people that keep a bright light shining on this show and keep this show going. And I'm going to do a couple of those today because I realized there were a few of you that have donated to me that I didn't do a shout out for. And that's not super cool when I promise a shout out to everyone. So let me do a shout out for some of the peeps that I haven't done a shout out for yet. Let's do it right now. The first person that I want to give a, a shout out to today is Darren Hoffman, who pledges $5 a month to keep the show going. And I got a really awesome letter from Darren the other day, who wrote me a letter and said, you know, I listen to your podcast all the time. I love your show. Thank you. Thank you. And then I listened to the episode you did with Terry and John, episode 201, I think it was, where we talk about um, spinal cord injury and sex. And he said, I learned all about autonomic dysreflexia. And I, I brought that to my students. He works as an assistant professor in the medical school at University of Iowa. And he was like, I told my students about this and I told them to listen to your show and I just love what you do and thank you. And I learned a lot and I was like, that's really amazing. And, and it's just so nice to be told that. So Darren Hoffman, thank you so much for your pledge. Thank you for your $5. I appreciate that. The next person I want to give a shout out to today is Tyler Power. And to them I say, Tyler, you give me the power to move along and keep doing this show. So thank you so much for your pledge of you. Let me just pull it up again. You pledged $5 a month. Thank you. Thank you. Now there are some of you that I see that have pledged here that have, that have wanted to build a show with me. 
And I would love to build a show with you on any topic related to disability that you want to shine a bright light on. Either you can come on as a guest or you can tell me to do all the research and I'll do some research around that stuff. So make sure to email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com letting, us, letting me know that you've pledged under that amount and I would be more than happy to respond and do a show with you for you because this show is not about me. It's for you, the listener. So let me know that you pledge and I want to be able to, to fulfill that for you. If you want to support the show and you want to support Disability After Dark, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge $1 a month or $5 a month or more to get the show one day early and a weird, sexy, awkward shout-out for me as as well as completely ad-free on the Patreon account. So I take out all the ads and all the sponsors that help the show go too. I take them out so you can get right to the thick, meaty part of the show. You see that sexual innuendo there? Yeah, I went there. The thick and meaty part of the show. So uh, if you want to support the show and get the show one day early and totally ad-free, patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. I really appreciate it, and I'll be super honest and let you know that I use that money to survive as a disabled person. So not only is it helping the show thrive and keeping the, the servers running and everything, it also means that I get to to have some money as a disabled person. So it means a lot to me as well. So I really, really appreciate any donations that anybody can is able to make. But let me know also, I haven't done a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes stuff and a lot of Patreon stuff other than giving the show away one day early. If there's any way that I could do something for you also on the Patreon feed that would make you feel like you want to donate to me or, or, or feel like you're getting your money's worth... Also, I'd love to do that for you. So let me know at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com what kind of stuff you would want to see on a behind-the-scenes or on a Patreon that I haven't done other than our, other than putting the show up one day early. Let me know. I'd love to work on some new stuff for you. Also, I haven't mentioned it yet on, on any of the recordings, but we just passed our four years. Our four-year birthday was, I think... September the 7th or September the 4th or one of those times. But either way, we're already surpassing that. Holy goodness. Four years on the air. Wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. So thanks for thanks for sticking with the show through all of its transitions and all the ways it's changed. Thanks for being there with me and continuing to listen to the show as we... As we have gone from shining a bright light to sex and disability, to shining a bright light on story, to, sh- to shining a bright light on everything about disability, thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Just very quickly before we get to our guest today, what I want to let you know is I would love to bring, bra- to bring back a few of the Minnesota ideas that we were doing before, where we would like do Minnesotes and do some letters from listeners on the show or on like a day for like 10 minutes and just do a few a few letters from listeners. And so the topic that I want to do, because we're moving into telling stories about disability and shining a bright light on stories, I want to hear the funniest thing that happened to you as a disabled person. Be- and not in spite of your disability, but because of your disability. What is one of the funniest things that have happened to you? Write me an email at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com and let me know what a really funny thing that happened to you because you're a disabled person. And 
It can be about sex. It can be about disability in your day. Just something funny that happened to you that you want to share about about your experiences. So you you'll you'll write that into me, and I will read it back to you on a special minute. Though we haven't done that in a while, but I'd like to bring it back for a little bit because it'd be a fun thing to do. So send me a letter and um, tell me the funniest disabled thing that happened to you, and we'll go from there. But now. Onto the show. One of my most favorite things to do with people on the show is to sit down with them and have a conversation and meet them where they are in their lives and bring and find a way to inject my experience as a disabled person into their experience and kind of weave and talk with them. And that's one of the things I love doing in my work as a consultant and just in my life is to bring to bring to listen to other people's experience and be like, hey, how do we infuse disability here? And I loved today sitting down with my guest. His name is Trip Richards. He's a trans porn star. He goes by Triple X Trans Man on the social medias. He was so fun to talk to. We talked about about disability and the linkages between disability and the trans experience, masculinity. We talk about um sexuality and disability, we consider whether or not a strap-on is actually considered a an assistive device, which I never thought about before. There's so much that goes on in this interview. I had so much fun with him, and I gotta tell you, you I, I was Zooming with him when we did it. He is one sexy fucker. It was a really, really fun interview. I love getting, getting to have conversations with people that I watch in porn, really, really deep conversations with people who I watch in porn. And, and Trip did not disappoint here. He was a fantastic guest and one of my all-time favorites. And I'm really, really excited for you to hear it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Trip Richards, a.k.a. Triple X Trans Man, right here on Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability story. Trip Richards, hello. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I I really am excited you're here because I love sitting down with porn stars. It's super <laughs> fun to sit down with people that I watched get off and people that I've gotten off too. So it's always fun to do that, but... I've been following your work on the Twitter, on the, like, the social media sphere for a while now, and I really love the stuff you do and how you bring a different perspective to porn, and that's kind of why I wanted to have you on, because I just love, I love talking to people about different perspectives, being, being disabled and living in a different body. I have a totally different perspective, so I just felt like it was a really cool chance to kind of batter around some ideas and have a discussion, and yeah. Well, I'm delighted to do all of those things with you and glad to kind of bring a voice and maybe a person to just the body that you've seen also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's nice. Like I, I also think that it's really awesome to, you know, to see, to see people who do this kind of work we do. And I've done, I've done porn and I've done sex work and I've done all those things too. So like, like mm-hmm. it's nice to see us with our clothes on having, having, you know, conversations about the stuff we do. So yeah. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, well, can you introduce yourself to the audience for people who are like, who is this person? Can you introduce yourself <laughs> to us? Tell us who you are, what you do, 
and we'll go from there. Sure. So my name is Trip Richards. Um, I perform on a bunch of different platforms as Triple X Trans Man. Um, basically, I am an adult content creator, which is a very fancy way of saying that I do porn. Um, I've been in the adult industry for almost seven years now. Um, I am a transgender man, which is probably why I'm here, because that's the most unique or interesting or offbeat thing about me. Um, I transitioned female to male trans. I transitioned about five and a half years ago. Um, yeah, that's about it. Wow. Wow. And it's not the most interesting thing about you. The most interesting thing about you right now is your beard. You have, you have <laughs> My beard is out of control. But like, holy wow. I have a thing for dudes and beards right now. And I got to tell you, there's like, it's hitting all the marks right now. So like, well, thank I, you. I can't grow a beard like that. So I'm also super jealous because my, my beard does not grow like that. My beard is the patchiest, most pitiful, like saddest beard ever. So I'm a little bit jealous. <laughs> I, I always joke that I do a couple things really, really well in the world and growing hair everywhere is one of those things. I'm there for that. That's, thank you. I guess one of my sexual fetishes, I guess, if I'm being super honest, I like hair. I like body hair. It's, it's a thing that I'm into. So I feel like body hair is one of those things that is kind of the quintessential epitome of masculinity, um, both biologically and socially. Yeah. So you're into guys. Yeah, like it gets me. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, big surprise, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it gets me. It gets me like super excited. Um, so your beard is hitting so many markers for me right now. It's awesome. Um. I wanted to ask you, though, are you somebody who experiences or identifies as having a disability? So I've actually been thinking a lot about that question, um, obviously, since you and I talked about me coming on your podcast. But it's something that I've thought about just a lot in general in life. And I think kind of the only way I can answer that is to start by saying, what's the common language? How do we define what is being disabled? Um, I'm curious how you would define it but I'll define it by saying anything that is separate from outside of normal, however we define that socially, and in addition that provides some kind of um, challenge or difficulty in daily life in some form. And I feel like it needs both of those pieces. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a good definition, but it's, it's the one that resonates for me. Yeah, I, I, it's funny because I was speaking to somebody on the podcast like a couple hours ago about this very question, and he asked me the same thing. He was like, how do you define it? And, you know, I, I've worked in disability for so long, and I work as a disability, a self-employed disability consultant, and I work in that space very closely doing what I do. And I should, you'd think I would know the answer to what, how do you define disability, but I, I got to tell you, I don't ever know because it's such a unique experience for each person that falls into that category or chooses to use that terminology for themselves, um, that it's really hard to define. But for me, the way I define it for me is I define it as something that, like you said, puts you outside the norm and something, something where you need help, something, something where you need an aid, some sort of mobility aid, some sort of, whether that's a mobility aid that you can see like a wheelchair or a walker, or like you, you need um, mental health supports or you need, like, like drug supports. If you need some, if if you need something to to help you throughout your day, like, look, so many people in the world wear glasses. It was so funny. Somebody, yeah. on, somebody on Twitter 
my friend Amanda on Twitter the other day was like, look, if you wear glasses, you're pretty much disabled and you're using a mobility device. Why That's a very good point. I'm blind as a bat without these. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, so then, in, you know, in some circles, you would be considered disabled. Um, Just for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's something we I put on a pair of glasses since I realized this is not a visual medium. <laughs> oh, like, oh, so yeah, yeah, just for that one second, you were disabled. Um, yeah. No, but I think, you know, it's so tenuous, the how we define that. And I think the definition of disability is so personal and so much like, you know, and, and we, this is the next question I have for you is like, how, what is the correlation between being trans and disabled? And I think before we get to that, one of the one of the one of one of the correlations I think is you know how do you define that what how do you define trans like how do you define absolutely it's a real it's a real challenge so that's why I kind of start when you ask that question of are you disabled I'm like well first let's figure out a common language of what does that mean and if your definition is a little bit more precise than mine and I like it I'm going to think about it in terms of the idea of needing a support or an aid or you know an intervention of some sort I, I like that that makes sense as a framework. Yeah. Um, and I come out to basically the same conclusion, which is, yes, um, I do, speaking for myself, I'm not, you know, elected as the speaker for other trans people or for anyone other than myself. But speaking personally in my, you know, lived experience, I would say, yes, I relate to those elements of being disabled. I relate to the idea of being different, of being outside of, you know, the, the human norm you know, normative expectations. Um, and I also relate to the idea of, as I said in my definition, um, having difficulties because of that. Or in your definition, yeah, there's actually a series of things that I and my body require to be, you know, considered normative or even be considered um, comfortable for myself. Um, I'm on testosterone, the male hormone, and I require that to be myself. Um, I've had surgeries to make my body feel like it is at home for me. Right. Um, sexually, I use a device, a strap-on, if I feel like topping someone. So all of those are assists or aids using kind of your framework that way. Um, and yeah, I would say absolutely. Now, even in, even in saying this to you, I feel a kind of, um, a kind of sense of discomfort at defining myself that way. And I would say that I have that for two reasons, if you don't mind me continuing on that. Of course. Um, yeah, one of them is, is the idea of the social stigma of calling oneself disabled. And I'm hesitant to, you know, use that label or, um, you know, really connect myself with that label because there is a lot of stigma. And then the other one is I don't want to kind of appropriate the disabled experience from people who, you know, maybe need it more than myself. Um, See, kind that's, of the, that's the higher needs idea yeah but that's why i would challenge you people people have said this to me a number of times on the podcast and i always feel i always feel like first of all i never considered a strap-on to be an assistive aid before and now i'm like oh that's such a cool idea like it absolutely is <laughs> i never thought about it and now i'm having like just visions of time I've seen people wearing a strap on being like, oh, they're actually putting on a medical device. Like, that's really, all right, Completely. cool. Yeah. <laughs> Never really thought about that. Um, but to answer the larger question, like, I think when people are afraid of appropriating the disability community, and I, I get that totally, and there, there are clear examples of appropriation happening there, or it's not well, happening in the world, generally. 
Mm-hmm. But, but I think if you if you reach a point in your life, not you, but like the average person reaches a point in their life where they actually want to claim the word I am disabled, not to appropriate because they actually feel like that's part of their journey, which mm-hmm. for all of us it will become our journey. So like we may as well start talking about it now. But if you feel if you reach a point where saying I'm disabled is important to you, I don't think that's appropriation. I think that's you coming into an experience that is that's been stigmatized and i think a lot of people with disabilities will tell you using the word disabled is a form of empowerment it may may be a journey to get to that place but you can get there and that's okay yeah i mean i certainly have gradually come towards that terminology and i think speaking with you is something i'm going to continue kind of um you know folding into my own definition that way I'm one of those people, and again, I'm going to have to keep saying this, but I'm speaking for myself. I am not speaking for other trans people, not for other trans men. There is a tendency for people to assume that just because, you know, I'm visible or, you know, popular or whatever, that I'm speaking kind of for a group. And I, I want to keep shutting that off. Like, this is my experience. But I have always experienced being trans as being a very medical situation, there's a lot of different models for like, what does it mean to be a trans person socially, historically, psychologically? I personally have always taken a medical approach to it. I was born in a body that had a birth defect. I did not and do not create the proper hormones. I do not have, you know, the proper gonads to create the testosterone that I need to be myself. And for that reason, because of that birth defect, I developed for the first 24 years of my life in a body that was wrong for me, you know, wrong for my brain, wrong for my self image. Um, And I take it to me, that's a very, very simple way of explaining it to myself that takes all of the complexities of like, what is gender out of it? It just says body needed a medical intervention, needs a medical intervention, and then lives happily ever after basically. Um, And that, to me, is a very, very comforting way of seeing being trans. And it also, I think, makes it a little bit easier for me to transfer that into the idea of a disability experience, um, as opposed to somebody who is necessarily proud of being trans. I'm proud of surviving those things. I'm proud of being myself. But it's just part of my medical history. I like the connection that you made there between, like, I can see correlations between your trans experience and like needing to to you felt like you weren't in a body that worked that was for you and so you did these things to be in a body i can see the correlation within disability of like if somebody wants a surgery to correct something as a disabled person they can do that i also saw when you were talking i I was feeling a little bit like oh the flip side of that is like what if you know, the trouble with saying, as a disabled person, I, I only speak for me, too. I'm going to just make that clear. I'm speaking as me, not for the whole community. For, for me, when I hear, like, oh, I was in a body that doesn't work for me. For me, as somebody born with a disability, that feels like, oh, well, I can't, you know, get out of my body. And I can't. So it's interesting that, like, we. the next question was, like, what are the differences and, and similarities between the trans and disabled experience? I think there's a huge discussion to be had about what is it, what does it mean to be in in what does it mean to be in the body that works for you and what happens when you 
can't get out of the body that doesn't work for you. Absolutely. I, I think what I was saying, I could kind of feel that question percolating in my mind and I knew you were going to go there. Um, so for me, I kind of take two approaches to where I am. And I'll use that just as an example. Yep. In one way, I fixed what I needed. And that was originally the terminology I used. You know, I got the treatment I needed. But that suggests that my life changes and becomes cisgendered, as if it was, you know, a return to the way that I should have been born. And it isn't completely, because as I mentioned, I'm still taking, taking hormones, I'm taking medications. And since this is a podcast about sex, my sex life and my sex organs are different than what I would have been born with in, you know, another universe, yeah. um, you know, for, if, if I was a different person, I would have been more differently. So in that way, it's fixed up to a point. And personally, I'm very happy with my life and body and all that, but it still remains kind of a, a part of my life and a part of my health care and everything for the rest of my life. Yep. Yep. I completely, like, I, I totally see that. I, again, I, I see that from a disability lens, like there's the correlation between trans and disability and based on what you said, like in terms of healthcare, healthcare is going to be a part of my life as a disabled man all the time too. Like I'm uh-huh. going to be dealing with doctors and medications and, and, you know, surgeries and things like that as part of my disability experience the whole time. And so I still struggle with, for me personally, I struggle with the idea of like you're in a body that works for you part of me wishes as a disabled man, even though I love my disability and I'm very proud of it and it's brought me where I am and it's part of why I do, do the work I do and it's given me the activism role that I do, there is a part of me that's like, if I could get out of my disabled body right now, if I could have a surgery to just flip a switch and walk tomorrow, for sure I would do that. For sure. For sure. So, And both of those parts of you, you know, the pride of being who you are and what you've created – but also saying, yeah, if there was a choice, sure, you'd flip the switch. I think that both those things can kind of exist simultaneously because they sure as hell exist simultaneously for me. Yeah. You know, I would not be Trip Richards. I would not be semi-famous. I would not be making money from porn if I'd been born cisgendered. You know, if I'd been born cisgendered, the chance of me having a 12-inch penis is very, very low. I would not have become a porn star. I mean, if you're born cisgendered, and look half as good as you look right now you might do porn maybe maybe and that's very kind of you but i can i can go ahead and sit here and say i never ever would have ended up in the adult industry if i had not had all the experiences including of being trans that's fair um do you think there are other correlations between between the trans experience and disability experience that you want to explore today I mean, I think I kind of hit on the ones that I consider the big ones, which are the idea of differentness, the idea of needing intervention. Um, I think the other kind of big category that I sort of touched on in terms of stigma, but it would be the social parts, which briefly are the idea of other people don't get us. Other people have a lot of questions, including a lot of intrusive questions. Um, other people have a lot of assumptions about what it means to be trans, just like what it means to be disabled in a classic sense. Um, I think that that would be like the biggest correlation comparison point is just how does the world see people who do not fall within that, you know, nice neat little bell curve of normal. Yeah. 
And I, re- you know, I've talked to a couple of trans people about this question on the show, like years back. And I remember talking with somebody and saying, you know what, I really admire trans people because they, they got to, and, and again, I speak from a totally place of cis privilege. And I'm going to be very careful what I say here. But no, it's fine. They they get to mold the body in the way that they want to to feel good, and there's something really powerful about that. And particularly with trans men, they get to recreate a sense of masculinity. They're not they're not necessarily sometimes they are, but not necessarily are they tied to this idea of having to show masculinity a certain way. Absolutely. I think that our, as trans people, our idea of performative gender, we're very, very aware in general, you know, I'm I'm trying to speak for myself, but also there are certain trends in the community that I'm aware of, so I'll speak to. Yeah. Trans people in general are very, very aware that gender is a performance. It's how you walk, it's how you talk, it's how you dress, it's the places you go and the people you hang out with. Like, gender is not some innate monolithic entity. So, and a lot of cisgendered people would do well to realize that, because it's true for everyone. But trans people, having lived kind of on both shores or, you know, in the middle, um, we're very aware of that process. We're very aware that it is a performance day to day. Um, And yeah, definitely we can create our own version of masculinity or femininity or anything else, which is a really amazing gift. Um, it also leads to a lot of really sticky situations of trying to figure out, you know, who am I and what does this mean? And sure, I know I'm a man, but what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. And I, I feel Can like... Can I say fuck on this? Yeah, totally. <laughs> okay. That's my favorite word. So cool. It's the Disability After Dark podcast. I would hope you could say fuck. Um, <laughs> you definitely can. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think about in terms of disability and masculinity and like maleness is that I... I think a lot of masculinity is performative and I feel I struggle as, as a queer disabled man who's into other men um, to live up to this performative idea of how, like, if I were able-bodied, how would I walk? If I, were, mm-hmm. if I were an able-bodied man, how would I hold my dick? If I were an able-bodied mm-hmm. cis man, how would I fuck? Like all these things, all these things are things I think about because right now as a wheelchair user, I can't, I can't, I'll be blunt, I can't thrust, I can't fuck the way that I want to, I can't stand up to pee, like all these things are, all these things have been, not taken away from me, but never given to me, so I feel like, similarly to to trans men, um, I've had to craft a different version of masculinity, I can't be ultra hard, ultra aggro, I mean, I could try, but it would just look silly, like, I've had a little to look silly when cisgendered men dis- and non-disabled men do it as well. I know it looks. It <laughs> they, does they, look silly. they think they look cool, but they just look silly. They just look silly. But like you know, I've had to, and I think, and I think maybe for you too. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that I've had to craft this like quieter sense of masculinity as a disabled man. This like it's still there, and I can still like dick down when it's time. But like I have to be more patient i have to be uh-huh. i have to use my words more i have to be more creative in how i say stuff i can't rely on my masculinity to get me through if that makes any sense it makes complete sense and it makes me think that it's sad that cisgendered able-bodied men don't have to do those things because they just kind of get away with 
you know, acting like a caveman most of the time. And we've come to expect that to be normal and therefore anything to be a deviation from it, as opposed to saying, what is masculinity? You know, I, I don't, I, I would never speak for you, but I assume that you are, you identify cisgendered. Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, so I, I'm obviously not cisgendered, but I identify binarily as a man. You know, I don't feel like I'm genderqueer. I don't feel like I'm, you know, in some gray area. To me, I'm a guy. I'm a man. I know it. But I don't know what that actually means. And that is like a continual struggle to say, I'm a man. But what are the defining elements of that experience especially when they're not the things that we assume men do, which includes, as you say, like the sexual, quote, sexual prowess, what we consider that, or the aggression, or kind of the, what I think of as caricatured masculinity. So when you take that away, what's left? And that becomes like this, this really open-ended question to say, what is a man or what is a woman? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, as, a, as somebody with a disability that's something that I struggle with constantly of feeling not feeling like I'm man enough because sure. I because I need supports I need assistance with things that able-bodied cis men take for granted and it feels I don't know it just feels like some days I really want to be that macho mask mask per mask dude that I keep seeing on the apps and like maybe if I was more of that I'd get more dick I don't know and then part of me is like no I like who I am I'm quirky I'm weird I'm different like I can embrace that but I feel like in our culture anything outside the norm especially in queer male and male sex culture it's extremely looked down upon to be to dare to go outside those walls yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and I say that even as somebody who does go outside those walls, but I only go a little bit outside. You know, I am I am what is considered the palatable version of a trans man. I am cisgendered passing in my appearance. Um, I mean, basically it's that. that. That's what makes me palatable, that I have a beard, that I have body hair, that I'm pretty tall, that I have a lot of muscle. And those are not the elements that should make me a man because they're not the elements that make me a man, but they're the reasons that I have a big, you know, pornographic audience. They're the reason a lot of other people are very happy to film with me or fuck me or anything else is because I deviate only a little bit. You know, I'm only a little bit outside what they've come to expect a man is. Whereas somebody who is um, trans male identifies as a man, but doesn't look quite the way I do still does not come in with that privilege. You know, they still stay completely outside the walls. And that's actually something that, you know, I talk a lot about and that I work to kind of bring some people into the fold a little bit more or to have people extend their definition of, well, if they can be attracted to me, they can also be attracted to a variety of other things. But that's, uh, that's let's say, a social work in progress. Yeah, and I would, I would agree that it, it, it takes a lot of – it takes a lot of kind of guts to be – so vocal about that and to be and to be like one of the people that is 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 there saying you know i'm outside the walls but just a little bit but i'm still here and i'm still i still don't fit the exact binary you may be looking for Mm -hmm. right and then maybe if people have come to accept me they need to not just stop at that point but extend a little bit further and a little bit further yeah yeah i mean we, we we need to do you, do you feel a, a pressure to be like, because you kind of build yourself as the triple X trans man, which 
I think it's hot and totally go for it. And yes, yes, all the things. But do you, because of that, do you feel like a pressure to hold that platform and you just want to sometimes not? I'm not sure if I understand your question there. Are you talking about the actual terminology that I use to describe myself or something broader than that? I'm talking about like the... The term, well, well, I guess both those things. I'm talking about, like, do you feel a pressure to be like, to be this role model when you just want to, uh, when you just want to do, when sometimes you just want to do, do porn, you just want to be there in the, in the fold, not being a representative of all this stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's that's a huge conflict for me, um, and it's one that I haven't really kind of shaken out in my own personality as well as in my business because I'm trying to like juggle those things. That at one side. I, I do porn because it's a great career for me. It allows me a lot of freedom. You know, I'm very happy doing it. It's a job and it's a job that I enjoy. And on the other hand, you know, and that's, that's basically, it pays my bills and keeps the roof over my head. And I'm grateful for those things. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm like, I'm doing porn to be an advocate. I'm doing porn to be a visible figure of diversity. I'm doing porn to bring other people into the fold and, you know, help change minds and hearts and it's uh, it sometimes is a conflict between those things because it's like sometimes, as you say, I just want to make porn, get paid, be successful. And then I'm like, everybody has their eyes on me as kind of like a figurehead within the industry and especially within the trans male sex worker community. And that's, uh, I don't know, sometimes it definitely feels like I'm, I'm sort of up on a pedestal that way and everyone's watching and everyone's judging that. And kind of, I have to behave in a certain way just within the industry, as opposed to just, you know, being another person. Yeah. And I feel, I, I've only done one porn. I want to do more. Uh, when I did mine, I, I, I felt honored to be able to do it because I was like, this is the first time they've seen a severely disabled person owning their sexuality and putting it on film. And, you know, especially in queer male and male spaces, it's, it was a huge deal for me to do it. Absolutely. But I was also like, what if I want to do another one where I just fuck? Like, what do, What if I don't want it to be this big watershed moment? Mm-hmm. What if I just want to, like, be a dirty slut for 30 minutes with somebody and have it on film? Like, what if that's what I want? And so I... And it almost feels like doing that, of just normalizing it, would in some ways be more powerful. Yeah, right? I mean... I mean, um, that's, but when I did mine, like we had to spend, when we did that, we, we were slutty and it was fun and it was great, but I, I felt this pressure to be, to have it be this iconic thing because I had never seen anything like that out there before. So, um, well, as somebody who's done many, many, many dozens of porns, I would say that some of that is just because that was your first experience in a situation and there is a lot of pressure to kind of, you know, make this the big one and like this is a groundbreaking moment. I don't necessarily feel that way day to day anymore. Um, I think what I was referring to of that, that kind of being on a pedestal and everybody's, you know, making assumptions or judgments based on every, every little act that I do is more like on social media and discussions and things like that. When I'm actually filming it's come to a point of feeling very, very organic. It's actually come to the point that I want, which is that my transness is a part of the story because my body is, you know, there, but it's not necessarily like the central element of the story. You know, I feel like I am Trip Richards before I am 
a trans man, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that the, like the first time I, I don't want to say like first video, but you know, when I first got into adult work, my transness was super, super central to the story because it was new and different and it was new for me. And now I feel like it's been brought down a few notches in my own mind. I don't know what viewers see though. You know, the first time viewer today is still going to be like, oh my God, that's a trans man or oh my God, that's a man in a wheelchair. But I feel like the more you do it, it becomes, it becomes normalized in our own minds at least. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I watched like a trans performer and I, I wasn't, I wasn't like, oh my God, that's a trans performer. But I was like, oh, this is different, but I'm still hard and it's still fun. And like, it wasn't this big shocking moment of like, I am now consuming a trans person in porn. It was, this person's hot. I'm enjoying this. So I'm not going to worry about it and it'll be fine. I mean, that's the way it should be. I think that the only people who have a crisis of conscience when they see a body that they don't expect are people who have, you know, some maybe unrealized issues in their own identity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would hope that people would see me do what I, you know, my porn. And I would hope they would think, oh, he happens to be in a wheelchair and he's super hot. The other part of me is like, when I did it, I remember doing it thinking people are going to see this and I need them to see my wheelchair and I need them to see all the things that I get, how I get in and out of bed. And I need them to see this because I need that to be that reality of my life to be a part of this. And that is such a powerful story. Like I fucking love that. Yeah. Like, but I, I think you're right. If I do, when I do it again, I, you know, I would want maybe to not have the wheelchair in every shot, maybe to, to like not, have my hoist be part of it initially like i don't know just i would want to lessen the impact to be like oh yeah you, you know i'm disabled now but now watch me fuck i mean i think that makes perfect sense and i think you should absolutely do that and you know anybody who follows your work your career that way can see that progression because they already know who you are they already know you know the parameters of your body and your needs but it does not always need to be quite so central to the story um i guess like the closest correlation that I would have for me is that I've made a big effort, especially this year, to to produce scenes where I'm topping, where I'm the one, you know, actively fucking, because we don't see trans men doing that very much. There's an yeah. assumption that trans men are bottoms. There's an assumption that trans men are submissive bottoms. I'm not either of those things. So I've had to work really, really hard to to work with partners who are totally down, totally down with getting fucked by me. Most people are, and I appreciate that. But it's something that I felt like the audience needed to see. You know, they needed to get shaken out of their little boxes. They need to get out of the typecasting of what they, you know, assume it's going to look like. But I also make no bones about it. You know, I clearly am wearing a harness, wearing a strap on. Um, and I'll also, you know, just even the little stuff, like you mentioned, your chair or whatever. Like when I edit, when I do all my own, like editing and post-production work in my videos, I keep in the little stuff. I keep in hey, I need a little bit more lube. And somebody goes and gets a bottle of lube and puts it on their dick. Like, I keep in those really, really real moments because I don't want it to all just be, like, super produced where, you know, the dicks are always hard and the holes are always wet and, like, everything just goes perfectly. Like, I work really hard to actually make it look like real life. Yeah. Maybe pretty real life, ideal real life, but still real. I love how you can have such a deep conversation and then spend like two minutes 
saying how you you know you work really hard to make sure all the the holes are wet and the dicks are hot. Like, <laughs> I, I enjoy that part of the conversation so much. Um, I want to shift a little bit. Do you as as somebody who did escorting and who mm-hmm. does sex work, do you have any experience with disabled bodies in the bedroom? I do. So first I will say that I don't escort any longer for a number of reasons, but I did pretty much full time for about two years. And I'm really, really grateful for the experience that I had, you know, in general during that time. Um, To answer your question, I'm going to return first to our, you know, discussion of what is disability. And the reality is probably many more of my clients were disabled using that definition than I'm aware of. Um, Probably, yeah. Invisible disability is real. Yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, if we if we make the definition of disability as broad as we already did, you know, you and me talking, probably I just didn't notice it. But that said, there, I have a couple experiences, a couple instances with people who were more obviously disabled. Um, I would say the categories I experience with are sensory, meaning blind or deaf, and mobility. Um, for whatever reasons, musculoskeletal or otherwise. So yeah, I definitely had experience with clients who are somewhat outside of a, you know, perfect norm, normative, you know, not in a judgment way when I say perfect, but like whatever we consider norm. I I, I, have, I have trouble with even like defining that term. Yeah, the word normal in-, in it, It's so sticky. It's so sticky in so many communities. So I, like, I appreciate the discomfort, but it's okay, don't worry. Like, I, yeah, like I, I think you're getting what I'm trying to convey here. Hopefully. Yeah, totally. Totally, I hope um, the listeners do too. Yeah, so so yes, I would definitely say I've had experiences with that. And then to expand it even a little bit further, I would say that I'll never name names or say details, but many of my clients were older and many of them didn't get hard. They certainly didn't without, you know, some medic, some chemical aid, medication aid, or you have to, you know, work around it with sex and be a little bit more creative. And I absolutely consider that part of an experience of a body that isn't, you know, as I said, hard and ready to go at every moment, like we imagine happens in pornography. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, learning to navigate that with clients, I think, really expanded my definitions of like, what is sex? What is good sex? Um, what leaves both parties satisfied. You know, I definitely had clients where I was like worried, you know, are they enjoying themselves? And they did. It just didn't look the way that I initially imagined that it would look. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you, look, I work with us with escorts and I, I know the conversations I've had with them about, about, you know, me saying, Oh, I'm sorry that I can't come. I can't come or I'm not getting hard or, it doesn't mean I'm not enjoying myself. And to go, to go back to the discussion of like masculinity that we were having in those moments when you're with somebody who, and I mean, the sex workers that I, that I have, that I've chosen to work with in the past have been really, you know, they fit that prototype of what quote unquote a man is supposed to look like, whatever that is, you know, the, the, the archetype of what a man is supposed to look like, mm-hmm. um, which even saying that feels weird coming out of my mouth now, but that's the kind of person that I would go after sexually. Um, and and so, that's okay to acknowledge, like everybody's allowed to have preferences. And I think that's such a, it, it's almost a taboo thing to say, especially in the current like sociopolitical climate, but preferences in bed are legitimate. Yeah, yeah. 
I think there's a really big difference between preference and racism, but or, and like or any kind of ism. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like it's just a sticky place, and especially right now, it's sticky. But I think there's also a way to respect somebody and find somebody to be a good and valuable and beautiful person without wanting to fuck them. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, and I think I think that I think that when you, I just I just think the way that some people use the word preference is really they use it to cover up distinct isms yeah yeah because yeah. it's, it's been used for me in a number of different ways people have said to me like oh i don't do guys in wheelchairs sorry just a preference and it's like oh oh so you're just an ableist and you didn't okay like cool and so like i just think that it's i totally agree with you people do have preferences and bad and those are totally valid i just think we have to be super careful how we use that how we how we mobilize that word in a way so that it doesn't hurt somebody. And I think people should also do some examining of have they even looked at the options that are out there? You know, my experience actually has always been with people or not always, but like most of my experiences personally and professionally have been with people who had never been with a trans guy before, didn't know the trans men existed for that matter. And seeing me being with me was something of an eye-opening experience for them. Um, just because it was something new and different that they literally never considered before. Yeah. And I mean, I appreciate people who've been open-minded enough that way. And I, and I, in my own way, kind of capitalize on that too. I'm like, hey, do you want to, do you want to be your first like sexy disabled guy? Do you want to be like, yeah. like I capitalize on that because I, because I know that that's going to make them think about disability differently after I fuck them Absolutely. for a night. They're going to think differently about, about, you know, disabled people because I was able to do that for them. Um, when you were with the elderly clients and the older clients, as well as the, as some of the disabled clients that used that were more obviously disabled, did they did they leave you with any kind of like impressions about disability and things that you hold on to now after those experiences? Well, other than what I said about a little bit more general comfort with the idea of diverse bodies, and I think, I think that's my biggest takeaway from my time as an escort, is just how diverse bodies are, even how diverse male bodies are. Um, and that was personally a very, very comforting thing for me to recognize. I think the other takeaway is the communication is so, so important. And when I think of each of those people who were dealing with something, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Some of them did a great job of communicating to me something like, I'm deaf, I'm going to lip read, so let's stick to positions where we can see each other's faces. And then there were other people who just like, you know, didn't convey at all what they needed. And I was sort of feeling it out and guessing it and not wanting to ask an intrusive question. And at the same time being like, oh my God, am I making this person comfortable? Am I making this person you know, by pleasuring them, it was it was definitely much more challenging when people were not upfront, and um, that's something that I've tried to incorporate for myself of being really really upfront about people, giving them the chance to ask questions, um, giving them the chance you know to stop and ask a question, and also I have my kind of like thirty second primer on my body if somebody needs it of like, this is what I like, this is what you call this, 
don't do that. Do do that. You know, it's like the quick and dirty summary. And I mean, I will say at this point, especially since I just fuck other performers these days, I'm not very many people's first anymore. You know, most other gay performers have been with other trans men at this point, And I love that. It's great. But when I was an escort, most of my experiences were first timers. And, you know, you kind of have to teach people about your body. Yeah. So I wish, I wish that some people were just more upfront about it. You know, I wish somebody could say, hey, I don't get hard. I'm still feeling good. And see, I think, you know, as a disabled person that sometimes can't get hard or can't come when I want to or comes when I don't want to or has things happen to my body that I don't want to, as a disabled person, you know, I can understand why if somebody – if the really hot trans escort was in my house, the very first thing I wouldn't want to say to you is, hey, we're going to have a great time today, but guess what? I won't get hard. Like, I think that's a really hard thing to say because that's going to ruin the fantasy and part of why I Or you imagine it would ruin it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And I think, if I may say, not, not to speak too out of turn or play therapist here on you, but that may be because of the deep-seated programming of what does a man do what does masculinity mean? Mm-hmm. What does a top gay man do? And none of those things include informing somebody of any kind of physical need or inability. Yeah. And I wish people could just be more upfront about it because in my experience, it makes for a better experience overall. I, I would agree. And like, just to quickly go back to the top thing, um, I, I've never been fucked. It's something that I've wanted to do for the longest time, but because of my disability and because of the way that my body is and having to have discussions about being cleaned out and all these things that I can't do on my own, like I, I will advertise myself as like a disabled top, which really isn't the truth. I'm sort of kind of like in my head, I'm, I'd love to get fucked. I'd love to be like a slutty bottom. I'd love to do all those things, but because, because my body can't do certain things that I don't want to scare a partner away or make them uncomfortable like a lot of my sex experience has been how do I make this able-bodied person comfortable enough through the experience and then when they go then I can have the real feelings about what I'm really feeling absolutely and yeah I'm sorry if I um when I when I use the term top I actually use that because I, I've heard you explain that in some other podcasts uh, about your body I I actually was using that just in terms of your top in your activities not yeah. an identity and I, sh- I should have separated those um, cause like my identity, I, I'm a total top identity, but I mostly bottom because I have no objection to doing so. And it's what people want to see. So I think that there, there often is for people a difference between like their, their core orientation as it were, positional orientation in this case and their actual activities. And it's fine to acknowledge that. And I, I'm sorry for not making that clear. No, no, it's no problem. And thank you for clarifying. Um, I was just going to say like, we talked earlier about, you know, what a what a man does and how masculinity is defined and all that stuff. And so for me, topping feels, I feel like, yeah, I'm doing what, you know, what a cis man is supposed to do right now. And I'm, I'm, I'm fucking somebody and I'm doing it. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm also like, but I also really want to get fucked tonight. And I can't. I feel sometimes as a disabled person who really likes sex and who wants to get fucked, I feel like I'm missing out on, I don't know. I just feel like I'm missing a part of that experience and I admonish my disability because of it. That makes total sense. And I appreciate, you know, how much you can articulate that. And I would say that that's something that I can probably like 90% relate to. Um, 
when I top, it's obviously with the strap on, so I don't have any physical sensation. For me, topping is pure mental. I like yep. being in control. I like being active. I like being dominant. Not that all those things need to happen at the same time, but you know, those for me are parts of the topping experience. And yes, there is absolutely an element of stereotypical masculinity in fucking someone. But because I don't have a cisgendered penis, I do not have nerve, you know, nervous sensation. And sure, I wonder what that would feel like. I probably would never bottom again if I had that feeling. But, you know, I, I wonder about that. Um, I would say, and this probably is some other question you had, but I mean, I've personally come to terms with my body and kind of, you know, leaned into those things. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's parts of your body and, you know, sexual desires that you either can't or haven't yet explored, been able to explore. And I mean, there's parts that I will just never feel. And that's, you know, reality. I mean, I, and I think I, I like how succinctly you put that, but I still kind of like, I still, as right as you are, part of me is still like, I still want that. Like, I still want to be, I want to be able to put my ass up in the air and just get taken by a, like a dude. And that just feels like I'm not going to be able to do that. And so I, in my sex, I poured this kind of top. I like, I like how you've separated the idea of like, Physically being a top to having a top identity because of that I feel yeah. sort of I feel sort of like I'm even though I'll fuck you I'm still sort of a bottom like I'll still or I'm you know I'll still I have that identity of like okay you can take charge and I'll I'll be here for that yeah and I I don't want to lose in this discussion that many 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 people are very versatile and I may have overstayed a little bit when I said I'm like total top identity I think I was being a little bit kind of. Yeah, I was making a point. I am versatile, and I probably always would be if I was cisgendered too. But I think that kind of coming to terms with a body that's not matching is kind of like the core point for both of us. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe maybe a body that isn't behaving for us. Yeah, or, or isn't, or just isn't able to do what we wanted to do. And I think that part, like I mourn that a lot in my sex life. Like I, I like I said, I I have dreams about being like being the biggest slutty bottom ever and I just can't I can't <laughs> I can't do that because of my disabilities and that I don't know just it just it's a weird sense of loss that I can't always articulate I, I kind of want to give you like a big hug as you say that because yeah I mean I totally get it it's it's a sense of grief but I think there's also a way to say this is what it is you know yeah. Totally. And you make the best of it. And I don't know. I mean, I, I have kind of a pragmatic approach about my body. And I think that sex work the last, you know, like I said, almost seven years has definitely brought me to that point of being like, it's a body, you know? Like, I, I don't feel a lot of sentiment anymore. I'm kind of like, it's a body. It's a tool. It has a lot of nerve endings. It, it just kind of, an, it, 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 I don't know. I, I, I guess pragmatic is the only term I can think of about sex. That makes sense. Um, we kind of touched on this and I put this in a qu- as a question in the questionnaire because I thought it was important. I, as a disabled person, get asked a bunch of intrusive questions all the time about my body. The number one being in broad daylight with a stranger. Hey, um, how do you go to the bathroom or how does your dick work? Like I get that all the time, like so many times. Also in- the most common question the trans people get. 
<laughs> is it? No, actually- literally, this, it's the exact same question. Oh, that's really, like, which one? How do you pee or how does your dick work? Well, I guess if somebody knows I'm trans and they don't ask about my dick specifically, but how do you go to the bathroom is like literally the most common question, which is hilarious to me because like I have the same parts that I was born with and nobody questions a cisgendered woman how she goes to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very And like, weird. it comes out of my urethra just like you. Just, yeah, just like yours. <laughs> just like yours. Um. What other kind of intrusive questions as a as a trans person do you get that might be similar to what I get as a disabled person? And I wanted to see if there's like similarities in the other questions you get. So I'm not going to answer that directly because nothing okay. immediately came to mind. But I'll tell you something that I think is different, and I may be wrong. So please feel free to you know reinform me. I think that being trans especially trans in America in 2020 is, is more than just physical or medical. Um, Even though I personally conceive of it as being physical and mental, I think that so many other issues are tied into it. It's, it becomes a religious issue. You know, this is God's body that he made you in and you know, now you're fucking it up. It becomes tied into being trans becomes, you know, people's general discomfort with talking about sex and bodies and genitalia, people's lack of understanding of science, you know, thinking that chromosomes are the be all end all of everything. And if you're born one way, well, that's what you are. It's like being, being a transgender person has all of these moral implications to it that really have nothing to do with being trans but they, they become the questions and they become the reasons that people say things like, you know, to me, that you're an abomination. You're just an ugly woman. You know, they say things that have to do with a, a lack of understanding of the basic process. Maybe you get that too. I hope you don't. But I hope, I hope that in 2020 people realize a guy in a wheelchair is a guy in a wheelchair. It doesn't mean that he is... Yeah, that he needs an exorcism. Like it just there's there isn't all that much more to it. You'd be surprised in not necessarily in 2020 America, but a couple of years ago, I had somebody approach my mom and I. We were at a resort somewhere in Florida, and she just walked up to my mom and I. We were, we were just at this resort, and she said, "Hi, can I do Reiki on your son to heal him?" And oh we, wow! And we just paused and looked at her like, "Thank you, but no, we're gonna go over here now." that's so intrusive yeah it was and you know it's funny because we both kept our composure we didn't we didn't we just said thank you but no and so you know it's funny because you talk about how people put their morals on you as a trans person they put their religion on you like Mm -hmm. i've had that done i've had people tell me that i'm i've had people tell me from the time i was a young boy of like hey have you has jesus saved you yet oh wow like okay if he saves you then you won't be disabled anymore and you can just learn to walk and i remember at like i remember at like seven years old when the the, when this person who was my bus driver at the time told me this i remember even at seven being like you are wrong that is not right i like you just you know innately that this isn't how it works you're not ever going to for me i knew never gonna walk so that's okay. And the fact that this person believed that this entity, God, would 
fix me. It was like, <laughs> what? What are you? What's what's going on here? But you, and as I got older, and as more of those kind of things happened, you just you kind of look at them and go, oh, I wish I could educate you so much right now. Like, not even like I'm mad at you. Just like, where did you get this factoid that you're holding on to from? That isn't even fact. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. Thank you for telling me that, because that kind of blows my mind. I did not expect that you would get that, like, same level of anti-science and, you know, because I've definitely gotten the, you know, pray the gay away kind of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, that that honestly blows my mind. But maybe it's just one more thing that kind of falls under the umbrella of the trans experience, the disabled experience, whatever. They're all kind of one in the same. You know, they're they're under some kind of umbrella there, that broader society does not know how to deal with anybody who is not them, basically. Um, and they bring in basically like 16th century superstition to deal with it. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things I love about trans people and I love their otherness. Like I, I really, I think it's, I think it puts us in a class all of our own. And I don't, I think we can be upset about it we have days where it sucks we have days where i don't like it i have days where i hate being disabled like i don't but i i like that both these communities have dealt with their otherness in a different way so i I feel and i say this very carefully and i only speak for me but i feel a kinship to the trans community because of that otherness and so when i when i see a trans person or another disabled person or sometimes a trans disabled person i'm like oh i really i feel like we would connect because i know what it's like to be so dejected from society to be so removed to be so to be to be questioned at every movie make for everything or to be completely ignored like so i feel super connected to those to those communities which is part of why i wanted to have you on because i just feel like there's a there's a connection there that most people don't understand i think that makes perfect sense um and i've certainly felt that you know i feel a certain kinship with other trans people going a little bit broader i feel a connection with people within the broader lgbt community um, I feel a, a connection to people who are minorities of any form a disability does, you know, fall under that umbrella. Because, yeah, anybody who has had to kind of forge their own path and has had to kind of declare themselves to be themselves in a world that says, no, you're not, is, uh, is a very unique experience. And what's, what's crazy to me is when you add up all of those different, like, minority groups, you end up with a fucking lot of people but we're often so segmented and so boxed off from each other that I think kind of like the, the numbers, you know, we don't see the numbers. We don't realize that kind of total power of all of these minority groups together because instead there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of negativity amongst groups. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people kind of jockeying for position. There's people doing the suffering Olympics of I have it worse. No, you have it worse. And it's like, why can't people just sort of come together and realize there are common elements to an experience and obviously there are differences, but like the, the most integral similarities are so, you know, they, 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 they interweave between so many groups. Like everybody has something. Yeah. Yeah. I'm careful to, to, you know, I think everybody has something, but I think, you know, people say all the time, everyone's disabled. And I'm always like, nope, that's not, nope. But I agree with you that like everyone does have something and we can find common ground. And I think, that especially for trans, for trans and disabled communities, we need to come together more because there are so many of us who fall into both communities. Definitely. And we don't talk about that enough. And I just think that we can have a sexier time if we would just start talking about it more. I would say 
in addition to what you said of trans and disabled, I would say that sex worker community too, because sex work community really transcends both of those. Yes. Like I know so many disabled sex workers. I know so many trans sex workers. I know so many, you know, when you, when you draw the Venn diagram, like there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that sex work is a very, very good choice for people who either can't or won't work a nine to five job. And it's also a very, very good choice for people who are more in touch with their bodies, with the, just kind of like their physical self, the people, people who really connect to their physical self often end up in sex work, but they're often people who are also trans or disabled or something else going on. And like under that umbrella, there is so much commonality. Yeah. And I feel like within all of those, the Venn diagrams and those communities, there's so much infighting. It's really hard Mm -hmm. to, it's really hard to connect with all those communities because if you say the wrong thing, especially on social media right now, or something that falls outside of someone's like really steadfast view, you are it's over, it's finished. So yeah, social media has been really, really rough. I mean, it's always been rough, but I think this year has been a lot of like infighting and people sort of picking fights with the wrong people, as opposed to saying like, "What's the real goal here?" Yeah, who are we really? Good? Let's, let's who's, who's the real enemy? Yeah, that's. And for the most part, is it like, are they an enemy or are they just somebody that needs to be, to be righted, to be, you know, educated? Is is it someone that I can work with or are they just totally out of left field and I can't? Because I think a lot of people, in my experience, doing doing disability work and talking with these, with even people in the disability community who I love and respect and they have a right to feel the way they do, but I feel like a lot of it comes from anger and then when they when they post stuff it's like oh all i'm seeing is you're mad i'm not seeing i'm not seeing a way for us to get through to anybody right now other than you're pissed off so is your message gonna and so for me personally i've tried to shift my message from i'm an angry disabled person to yeah i'm pissed off but let me use the tools in my toolbox to guide somebody so that i don't have to feel that anger all the time yeah, totally. And and one thing that's frustrating about social media is it's not it's not set up to provide nuance. You know, as you've probably noticed, I am a verbose person. I speak in long sentences. I speak with parentheticals and clauses, and that doesn't fit in Twitter. You know, and that's that's one of my biggest frustrations. Is like I'll say something off the cuff on Twitter that I know does not capture all the nuance of what I really feel, but it's you know the best thing I can fit into the the character box. Um, but it, it, it's it's always it never fully captures like the nuance and the richness of what I'm trying to say. And I know that other people experience that, you know, that they're they're not fully able to express what they want to if they were given an essay. Yeah, that's why you know a long form like this makes so much more sense. Yeah, but somebody has to actually like listen to it. So everybody listening, listen to it again when you're done. Right. Um, <laughs> so you know, you've become one of my favorites to watch in the porn industry. You've become somebody that I immediately was like, yep, going to subscribe to this person. That's You do really cool stuff. And Thank you've, been you. with, you've been with like some heavy hitters in the industry, in the game, yeah. male part industry. You're like, wow, you've been with some people that are like, wow, that's really cool. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm still sometimes a little starstruck. Like I'll text a friend after and I'll be like, guess who just fucked me? Like, this is really cool. Like <laughs> somebody who, who you've been watching for like the last decade and I just spent the afternoon with them. Like you've been with the, like like the names that come to mind are Boomer Banks, mm-hmm. uh, Jack Dixon, like yeah, people, 
people that I, and I I just had Jack Dixon on the on the show recently. And- no, I listened to it. I love that. I listened. Oh, to, I, I think it was like a week after he and I had filmed. And okay, so so he was he was an interesting person, if I may speak about. Um, and I have no problem if he hears this. He yeah. is one of those people who does a lot of performative masculinity. He looks very butch, very tough, you know, big burly guy with lots of hair and lots of tattoos and a big old dick. Yeah. And he's actually like the sweetest, he most nuanced. The sweetest person. guy. I sat down with him and I was yeah. expecting exactly what you just said, Bunch yeah. Superman. And he, we spent, I swear, you heard the interview. We I did, like I really enjoyed it. 20 minutes talking about his, what he likes to make. That was my experience filming with him. Like I had obviously seen pictures of him. He and I had, you know, texted briefly to set up a filming time, but it was, you know, quick back and forth, not very, not very verbose, definitely no, you know, chit chat. And open the door, and there he is, you know, sexy and very masculine looking. And then it's like the the, the you know the wall falls off, the the curtain falls, and he's just sweet and chill. And you know, I, I felt like a really really good connection with him that was unexpected for me because he has a certain look and a certain persona in the industry. Yeah. Uh, and I've had that chance to kind of you know get to get to know the man behind you know behind the image with a number of stars. And there's so much more depth, which is like this really, really beautiful thing to see with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just thought when I talked to him about disability, we talked a little bit about his experience escorting and we talked about all those things. It was just like, who, this person is not who I see on camera. And so, like, yeah. Oh, no, the mic just decided to do a thing. Of course. Uh, Done. Hang on two seconds. No problem. I wish I could like reach to the computer. Like that's my first thought. Like grab it. <laughs> Maybe it'll say now. Okay, so we're good. Okay, production Andrew, cut that out or don't or I don't know. So we'll see how. No, that's on. that's real life. <laughs> real life. The mic fell down, friends. Um, you know. So the question about you have you having been with like all these big names like Bimmer Bank, Jack Dixon. Like I can't think of all the others, but many others who I follow and get off to. Um, you know, being being in the industry, how how do you think we make escorting and porn that much more accessible in both in both uh, in both a sense for for trans people and for disabled people, or both? Like how how does how can the industry get more in line with the times? Yeah, I mean, I've been in discussions basically trying to answer that question for a long time, and especially this year, especially talking about racial equity, but it kind of extrapolates to everything else as well. And I don't have a great answer to it because there's, there's just, there's so many layers to try to get to that point that you want and I want. Um, but I think the biggest one is that people, viewers, consumers, they need to see themselves represented. They need to be able to see somebody who embodies them on screen. And I, I think that that's a much bigger question than just pornography. You know, it's the reason that we need, and I think it's gotten better, but not good enough, that we need diversity in big budget movies. We need diversity in shows. We need diversity, you know, on the news. Um, and we need diversity that's not just tokenized. I think that that's the hardest part because like when I'm, when I'm figuring out who I want to film with, 
there's a whole bunch of metrics that go into that. But I don't want one of the metrics to be like, okay, I have four white guys. Oh, so I need a black guy and a Latino guy. Like that just feels so limiting. And while those people probably would be perfectly happy to film with me, I don't want them to, you know, think back five years later or, you know, after their career and be like, yeah, the only reason I was ever in that porn was just like, you know, filling a a checkbox in the diversity coordinator. Yeah. So, so that's something that becomes one of those real challenges of how do you, how do you have a diverse cast of characters because they're people, not because they're diverse. You know, that doesn't become the master status. That's kind of what I was talking about with me being trans. Like, I am me. I am Trip Richards, first and foremost. My transness is kind of the, the you know, the, the second line under the headline. Um, and that's ideally what we would see in porn is just like this very natural, broad cast of characters, but that's the ideal. You know, we don't live in an ideal world. So I think the next best thing we can do um, for those people who are within the industry or have some control over it, and I'm thinking like studio owners, modeling company agents, things like that. You know, people who are in some way related to the industry, they need to actually start thinking about, okay, we have 10 white guys in this production. Why are there 10 white guys? And why do they all look the same? They look exactly the same. Why do they look exactly (laughs) the same? Exactly the same. And we all know the type, you know, clean shaven, lots of muscles, big dick. They're all the same height. They're all the same weight. And like, I don't want to be disparaging to those people because there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. No, but there's something not. wrong with them being the only thing we see. Yeah, there's something wrong with the way they are, they are put on a pinnacle and the rest of us have to claw our way up. Exactly. And so to kind of try to answer your question, which is so multi-part, you know, something multi-parts to it, I get a lot of uh, comments and messages from other trans people who say something to the effect of, it's really cool to see another trans person on film. You know, I, I can finally see myself in pornography. You know, they'll, they'll say something like that to me. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's great. Um, I want there to be more of that. You know, I want people to be able to, to experience, um, you know, vicariously experience something by seeing somebody who is similar to them. Yeah. Um, now, I will say as somebody who is a businessman, first and foremost, and, you know, works in an industry that is very appearance-based, you know, porn is shallow. I'm not going to pretend it isn't. The challenge is how do you make something that is diverse, ethical, and also sells? Because you can make the most absolutely perfect pornographic production, and if nobody buys the video and nobody sees it, it doesn't matter. It's lost in the ether. Like it has, it has no impact on the world. The, the trick is to make something that has wide, you know, broad market appeal, wide appeal to lots of different people in lots of different situations so that it gets seen. That's the only way to make a difference, you know, through the art, through the work. Yeah. And I agree with that. And I think that's the struggle. That's why, like, that's why I love people who have just for fans. And like, I'm thinking about, doing one that is just me without clothes on being like, let's talk about You should totally do that. That would be wonderful. It wouldn't be me fucking a a dude every week, but it would be me being like, let's talk about this today. And here's my dick. I I would 100% support you doing that. And I would share the hell out of that. I would love you to do that. If If I can find a way 
to get it set up where I can explain to my attendant care workers why I need to have them undress me for a film. <laughs> <laughs> it might just happen. I mean, that, but it's something that I've thought about because I'm like, people want to know about this stuff and I could do it with my dick out. You can monetize it, which is important to you because content creators need to get paid. Yeah. And you can normalize it. You know, that's, that's what I want to see is just more and more diverse bodies out there while understanding everybody still needs to get paid, especially if it's, you know, your sole source of income like it is for me and many other content creators. Um, but yeah, I mean, that would be my goal of just like, how, how can we show as much diversity in pornography as, as exists out in the rest of the world? Because clearly it's out there. We're just not seeing it on screen. Yeah. How do you now? This may be an out of left field question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How do you feel that porn could be more accessible to disabled communities? Like, I'm thinking, like, not just having a porn star in a wheelchair, but like, captains on the porn, should they have closed captioning? Should they have, you know, different <laughs> color contrasts for people with low vision who, who can see shapes, but maybe can't see everything, but need a different format? Like, do you think there's a way to make the formats more accessible? I'm pro- I may not be the right person to ask on that because I just don't know certain things in terms That's of like, you know, what somebody's needs are. But, I will, but to, to answer your question, yes. I mean, that absolutely can be done, should be done. Um, I don't know if I know quite how to do it, but yes, basic accessibility like that. Um, I, I have two, two frames of reference to that. One is I have a good friend, personal friend, not a sexual friend, but we talk a lot of sex stuff. And he is virtually blind. He has like tunnel vision. So for him, seeing something on a big screen counterintuitively does not help him at all because he yeah. ends up just seeing like one pixel of it. So he watches porn on the smallest cell phone screen that he can find. And he can then see, you know, most of the action. Um, and that gave me just like a really cool perspective on somebody who is vision impaired and you know how he works around that to still see you know much of the action yeah um and then the other thing i've heard since you mentioned closed captioning i haven't necessarily seen that in porn but what i ha- i mean I-, I don't personally have experience with that what i have seen is the idea of transcribing the action um you know describing it you know this person is doing that this person you know is moving this way this yeah. person has this face you know and i think that would be a really cool kind of visual arts project you know, if, if I was back in college, I would be trying to work on that. I mean, I think it would be really cool to see the orgasm, like the, the someone's oh moment transcribed or like closed caption. Or Absolutely. Because like, one of the things, and I do this a lot on my social media now with image descriptions, where like if, I, if there's an image that I put up on my Instagram or my Twitter, I'll make sure to put the description after it. So I try to make it sexy. Like instead of, instead of Andrew's in his wheelchair looking like cool it's like Andrew's in his wheelchair with a smoldering smile and he looks like I try to make it really I try to play with it and I think it'd be really cool to see like porn stars being like here's a picture of me looking super hot and the image description is porn star standing with his huge beautiful dick out or like his you know (laughs) something that 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 not only says it's accessible but also let's play with that and I think that that ties into the idea of porn is an art form. Yeah. Um, it's a crude one, you know, in common parlance to use that term. But pornographic drawings have you know, been scraped on cave walls for a very long time. 
And if we think of it as another form of expressive art and, and almost separated from pleasure, like I've always been interested by how many people say something to me about, you know, videos of mine and they're like, I watched it, but I didn't jerk off to it because I, I feel like maybe in the modern world, I'll just speak to that. There's this idea that porn is consumed with the sole purpose of having an orgasm mm -hmm. and then you turn it off. And really it could be a lot more than that. Um, and some people realize that it's more than that. You know, I definitely have viewers and subscribers who watch it and, you know, notice details about it and maybe don't even have their clothes off. And I, I, I feel like that's something that maybe should be talked about more within the industry or just, you know, in general is that pornography is not just jerk off material. It is entertainment. It is art. It is an enjoyable thing to watch or listen to. Um, and it's not just kind of like goal directed of making the viewer come. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I've watched your porn and haven't jerked off, haven't even been hired, but yeah. like there is something, I got to say, there is something kind of magical about the porn you make because you can see, and now that I know you do it all yourself, it makes total sense now, but like you can see that the art that you put into it, you can see that it's not just where these, these dudes are going to fuck and then it's over. It's like, there's definitely a connection. And, and I think as a viewer, as somebody who subscribes to all your things and watches all your stuff, like I can tell you that, yeah, you've, if you're looking to make something a little bit deeper than just a fuck video, you've done that. You've succeeded. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a very high compliment. So I appreciate that. When, and I will say that doesn't in any way disparage somebody who pulls up porn, pulls their dick out, jerks off, comes, puts their dick away, turns off the board. Like yeah. there's nothing wrong with that kind of, you know, very, standard right like there's there's just nothing wrong with that but i don't think it's the only way that people consume porn because it's not the only way that people consume art in general um so so the reason i brought that up was the idea of what you said of how can we make this more accessible i think looking at porn looking at sex work more broadly as an experience as opposed to just sex um, so when I was an escort, I, you know, obviously phrased things in a way like you're paying X amount for my time because yeah. in America, you know, we're a very anti-sex worker and I had no intention of getting arrested. You know, they're never paying for sex. They're paying for an hour of my time. And I, I, I highlighted that with the idea of you are paying for an experience and that justified the very high rates that I charged. Mm -hmm. they, you know, people will go on a vacation. They will go to a restaurant. They will go to an amusement park. I'm an expensive amusement park. And I, I think that using, using that kind of framework takes it away from just they're here to have an orgasm and then leave. Um, I, 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 you know, I always tried to put a little bit more richness to that experience, including you're getting to know me, you're spending time with me. And I'm glad if, you know, my porn currently shows some of that. I'm kind of sad now you're not doing escorting anymore and that COVID's <laughs> happening because I would hire you based on that conversation. I would hire you right now. I definitely have had conversations with other escorts who um, are on both sides of that. And, you know, some, some of the people who are like, if I can get my client off in 10 minutes, I'm in and out of there and I make my money. And there's other people who prefer like longer you know, two hours, dinners, even overnights, things like that. 
um, not disparaging anyone in the industry. Everyone has their own style that way. Of course. But I, I, I mean, my feeling was always like, if a client just wants to come, I am not the provider for them. I'm way too expensive. I'm way too picky. Like, I, I wasn't the person to make somebody come. Like, they could do that so much easier with so many other people. But if they were looking for an experience, I think I was a good provider. Um, and yeah, that's the same with my porn. You know, if somebody's just looking to jerk off, great. But I hope that people actually watch it and they actually listen to some dialogue and they actually, you know, see a little bit more of the kind of the, the person behind it. God damn it, Corona. <laughs> what does Corona have to happen right now? And also, why, if you want to have one more client that's really awesome, <laughs> let me know. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, slash, I'm not really, but sort of maybe. Uh, <laughs> so, my last question for you, Trip, is do you have any questions for me about the disability experience that maybe you were too afraid to ask that I can answer for you from my experience? Could I actually talk about one other thing and then come back to that? Sure, of course. I felt like there was one category of thing that I think should be talked about, um, thinking about like who might listen to this and that I want to touch on, and I, I guess it ties into something I would ask you. Sure. Um, how, how does one come to terms with their disability, however we've decided to define that at this point. And the biggest one for me is a sense of humor. Like sometimes you have to just laugh at the absurdity of the human body, have to laugh at the absurdity of a human body that's not exactly what you expected and doesn't function exactly the way that you wanted. And being able to also deal with the kind of intrusive questions and comments that we talked about that people ask. Yeah. I feel like this this armor of being able to just laugh about it and, you know, hopefully a, a friend group or support circle you can laugh about it with is, is so integral to that experience. Because I, I think a lot of things that we talked about are kind of like down in the dumps, you know, they're focusing on the things we can't do or, you know, the experiences we won't have. Um, and I, I think there's a way to turn that to just like, you gotta laugh sometimes yeah, um, and really lean into that experience and like make make the best of it, which I know is such a cliche, but it really is. I mean, I decided shortly after transitioning, starting my transition, to lean all the way in and start webcamming and be naked in front of thousands and thousands of people. And if I hadn't done that, I would absolutely not be as happy or as comfortable in my life now, you know, five years later is when I started. Um, you know, if I, if I had just kind of like felt shame about being trans or stuck with one or two you know, safe partners who I thought would understand me and not put myself out there for the whole goddamn world to see, I would not have the sense of confidence that I do now. So that's, that's my little stump speech that I want to say about that one. There's so much to unpack there. Um, first of all, thank you for, for webcamming and for doing it the way you do it because you brought us, you brought the people that view your stuff, so much joy. Believe, Thank me, you. When I, believe me when I tell you. Also, um, I think a sense of humor is really important, and I have that. Like, a lot of the stuff that I, when I, like, I'm a, I'm a jokester. I like to play. I like to be playful. But I think also sometimes that sense of humor can be, can be for me as a disabled person, in coming to terms with being disabled, that can be hard to to keep that up. And I think it's also important to, not go down in the dumps, but to really sit with the grief and to sit with the 
discomfort and t- to talk about that. And so in a lot of my Twitter work and my Instagram like posts and stuff, it's me literally laying bare what I'm feeling about a thing, even if it's not pretty, if it's uncomfortable, if it's weird, like, but there it is. Cause I think there's an expectation, at least in the disability communities to be, to always be on and be up and be, and be like, careful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I, I don't know quite how to balance those things because there's a sort of idea of false cheer and, you know, look on the bright side, you know, at least you have your eyes and ears, you know, people will come up with some reason why you should be happy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I would get super resentful if somebody told me something like that. Um, and I do get resentful. I, I don't know the kind of humor that I was trying to get at. And I don't, I don't know quite how to find it. It's a little different than that. It's more this sense of just, water off a duck's back and kind of like these people and all their opinions don't really matter. I can, I can feel however I'm going to feel about myself. Um, and it's, it doesn't really have to do with how those people are talking to me. It's, it's finding a sense of separation that way, which is not mutually exclusive to also being like, this sucks. This is painful or awkward or expensive or anything else. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know quite how how to define the difference, but it is a different. It's a different kind of humor. Yeah, it's not Much a more internal sense. I think it's a humor that's like I have to let this go because I'm. If I don't, I'm going to hurt myself. And I feel like yeah, with a lot of my work, I used to really dislike able-bodied people. I'm like, oh my god, you're able-bodied. You're the worst. And here's why. Here's all the reasons why able-bodied are the people mm-hmm. are the worst. And now, that was making me like physically sick and physically unhappy and just not okay. So I made the decision to just switch. And be like, I can still talk about all this stuff, but I don't have to turn every able-bodied person that doesn't know anything or doesn't know about my experience into a villain to make myself feel better. Why don't I? I let I can let them do their thing. If they say an ableist thing, I can either I can have two choices. I can let it go and I can take a breath and move on. Or if I like them enough, or if I care about them enough, and if I want to invest time into them, I can then choose to teach them. It's not my responsibility; it's my opportunity. Yeah, I mean, that honestly completely perfectly describes how I deal with social media these days. Like, most things are block and delete, because I know that it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah. Like, I can just tell that it's it's not going to lead to a fruitful discussion or an eye-opening moment for anyone. And then there's something else that exists, you know, some other comments of people who exist in an in-between space, where I can see that they are potentially open to a discussion, or the discussion might end up with a you know, we'll agree to disagree, but we, we respect each other's viewpoints kind of thing. And I think the, the idea of like picking your battles is, is really big. Yeah, I think the same for me with, in terms of like my disability social media, I've stopped caring and I put out my stuff and if people disagree with me, that's fine. Like, but if they, and if they want to have a, a discussion about it that isn't going to end in abuse, then okay, I'll do that maybe uh-huh. but also if i don't want to i don't engage like, you great thank you for your point bye like i made mine i know what my platform is i had somebody recently i posted something about the disability experience and somebody from the disability community came into my mentions and was like well you're not speaking for everybody so how would you know and i said i wrote them back and i said well i didn't mean to speak for everybody i'm simply sharing my experience and thank you for letting me know how you feel and if you want to unfollow me you know where the button is. Feel free to do that. And they were like, well, you know, you're just, you." They're, and they're getting so mad. And I was like, <laughs> I just sat there and watched. And I said, okay, 
you can do what you're going to do. I'll make it easier for you. And I blocked them because I was like, all right, well, you've made your choice. But it wasn't out of like, I'm going to be spiteful. It was like, you're choosing to be upset because that's easier for you than just listening. And if you want to do that, that's fine. But I'm not as, I'm going to say my viewpoint. And maybe if I was wrong, I'll be corrected in a way that respects me still. But if you just want to fight, then I'm not here for that. Yeah, and I think it's that idea of like that disclaimer that I know I've said several times while we're talking. I'm speaking for my conception of the trans experience, not anyone else's. But really, I feel like that should be understood for everyone, especially on their social media. You know, some people who have like, you know, their let's say they work for a corporation and they have their you know the corporation in their bio or something, and they'll say like, you know, these these are my opinions. They're not reflective of my my job or something. I almost feel like I have to say something like that. You know. All, all tweets below are Trip Richards' opinion only. Yeah. Which really should be understood. You know, you speak for yourself on your platform. Other people speak for themselves on theirs. But I sometimes feel like you need to, you know, make that clear disclaimer of this is, I mean, social media has become kind of like the dear diary of our generation. Oh, it's such a, it's such a, a, a battlefield of like, it's like a minefield of like, if you don't say the exact right thing to the exact right person and if you, and there are people who've said stuff to me on social media about disability that I vehemently disagree with, but we were still able to have a conversation as human beings and not tear each other's faces off. And that's, and that's the nice. key part. Yeah. yeah, yeah, completely. Um, uh, um, did we get to the part? Did, any other questions you want to ask me that are that are that you've been dying to ask a disabled person that you haven't yet about sex, disability, or anything else? Well, I feel like the the part that I wanted to tie that in with, I, I really appreciate your perspective on of like, how do you deal with, I guess, negativity or um, how, how do you deal with the people who are determined to not understand you, I guess, um, because that's, that's a big piece of my like day-to-day experience um, as a person who is a public figure. And I'm always interested to see how other public figures navigate that. Hot beer with a dude just call me, hot dude with a beer just call me a public figure. I'm gonna be, <laughs> I'm gonna be fluttering for the rest of the night. Um, um, you know, I'm learning more and more to deal with it through the Twitter sphere. I, and I, it's not to, I don't admonish them. I just say, hey, this person said this, and I felt this way. Or I'll make it a very general statement of like, people say this all the time. It feels weird. I don't like it. Let's talk about it. Like, and I use. Twitter to kind of and Instagram to feel those emotions out. I also just have I'm learning to let it go. I'm learning to like what does it matter if we fight right now? Like is it gonna get us anywhere? If it's someone I care about and respect and they say an ableist thing or they say something that really hurts me, I will gently call them in and say, Hey, can we talk about that thing you said? I don't know about Well I it's like worth it. it because there's somebody who you actually have a connection with. They're not just like a faceless, you know, user. Yeah, yeah. And I think also I think that we have to ableism and I think the same with the same with the misunderstandings within the trans community and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like they're very similar and they're just a miseducation. People just don't know enough. They've not been educated or in a lot of cases they've not been educated. And in some cases it's, they've not, they're choosing not to educate, but it, Absolutely. there's a big difference between people who are willfully ignorant and people who just have never explored you know, this part of the internet before. Yeah. I will say that as time goes on, you know, as the years go by, 
it becomes harder and harder for people in Western civilization with access to the internet to justify their ignorance as anything other than willful. And I think there will be a point, I don't know exactly when it is, but there will be a point where I and maybe you decide if people are still uneducated, that was a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm personally approaching that point with people, but I'm not a hundred percent there. Yeah, I would say I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not 100% there. I try to listen to the when I'm speaking to a person, especially if it's not on social media, but if I'm speaking with somebody, I, and even even if it is on social media, but, it's, but particularly if I'm speaking with them, I try to listen to their tone. What is their tone? What are they? What is underneath what they're trying to say? Are they, are they trying yeah. to hurt me right now? Or are they just trying to learn? And if what is the intent here? Yeah, if the intent is kindness then I take it that way and I try to shift their viewpoint with kindness. I have had to learn being a public figure now to let that go because I think in my experience being a disabled public figure, it's easy to get a lot of about every able-bodied person's mishap and if you make if you put that on social media, you become a hero in that community because you look at all those silly able-bodied people that say silly things. Here's five examples of why they're silly. But I would rather use my pulpit to mm-hmm. to and that sounds weird and religious i didn't mean it that way no i totally get what you're saying but like i would rather use my platform to to guide somebody and i get much more joy out of watching somebody oh i never realized that but now i do and how cool is that like what the, my my primary sex worker that i worked with he's never been with a disabled guy before when we fucked and it was over and he was like wow never done that before but that was cool and like it was really it was so awesome to see him consider that differently. And now, mm-hmm. we, and now we talk regularly and we see each other when Corona wasn't happening. And it was really, it was really cool to like know that he, that I was his first disabled person. And now we have this running joke where like, you better not get another one. Cause I was your first. Like, it's, <laughs> it's playful. And so like to, to be able to teach that to somebody and to, to guide them through an experience and help them learn. I take so much more joy out of that than, than shutting them down because it's cool and going to get me likes. Like, who, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do call people out, and anybody who follows my Twitter has seen that. I will call people out for the really egregious stuff because I think it needs to be called out, and some people deserve to be publicly shamed, in my opinion. Yeah. But I do have a lot of conversations that remain private that are somewhere in that mid-ground where, you know, maybe I face palm about it to myself, but like it wasn't egregious enough to for them to be shamed publicly and it wasn't hateful that needed them to be blocked or anything uh yeah a lot of stuff exists kind of in those those mid spaces where hopefully something comes of the discussion totally completely this was a really fun sit down i loved sitting down with you um you're one of my porn favorites so i'm a little bit like flustered and giddy and happy about what you're talking um (laughs) How can the people get a hold of you? How can they support you? How can they follow you? I am all over the internet. Um, I don't know if when you do this, there will be a way to do like some some hyperlinks, maybe in when it's put on Twitter or whatever. Yeah, I'll put it on the Twitter. Yeah, um, but basically my Twitter and my handle on most platforms is triple X trans man, which is spelled out T-R-I-P-L-E-X-T-R-A-N-S-M-A-N. Um, that's my handle on Twitter. That's my handle on Insta. 
Um, that's my handle on my OnlyFans and Just for Fans. So basically, if you figure out Triple X Trans Man anywhere on the internet, you'll find me. Um, yeah, that's that's the main one. <laughs> all right, so I'll make sure that all that's in the show notes. Um, I appreciate was, that. This was really, really fun. Thank you so much for sitting down for me today and being so having so much to say about a lot of stuff that was really I never considered a strap on a a, a medical device, and now I do, and so. Like we just, it was a really fun conversation and thank you for being so open to exploring the linkages between disability and transness. And it's, a, it's always a fun kind of journey to, to, to go on with somebody. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to have, I guess, kind of that platform here with you. And um, yeah, we, we see a lot, or we hear a lot of like clinical stuff. We hear like a clinical interpretation of being trans or being disabled or whatever, I don't think that we hear as many like real people talking about their actual experiential lived situation. So I'm always glad to kind of demystify it that way. Yeah. And I, I would agree. And I don't think we hear enough from different communities. Like a lot of this podcast is me talking to disabled people. And so what I'm, what I'm liking to do with, with kind of these new episodes is talking with people who maybe didn't identify as, disabled before I talk to them, but then I have started to look at disability in a different way after I talk to them and have, you know, just changing conversations about otherness. And I think it's really, really fun, which is part of why, you know, the show is called Disability After Dark, because we're shining a light on stuff that wasn't really talked about before. Yeah, I love that. I mean, certainly some things you've said I'm going to think further about. Awesome. And I'd, I'd love to maybe have you on again to talk about them more or just talk about them properly. Cool. Works for me. <laughs> All right, well, Trip Richards, this was so fun. Thanks so much for coming on Disability After Dark, and we will talk to you very soon. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Thanks. Bye. All right, friends, this has been another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza, your number one queer cripple and your disabled Dick Smith. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or follow me on all social media at It's Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. We'd love to have you as a guest so you can shine a bright light on your disability story. If you want to support the show and get the show one day early along with ad-free versions of the show and a cool shout-out, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast Shining a Bright Light on Disability Story. We'll see you next time. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020